Welcome to the Getting Closer to the Cloud podcast. We are Microsoft technologists here to help you raise your rhythm of technical intensity and climb the cloud maturity curve. In each episode, we will talk about the latest and most interesting developments in the Microsoft Cloud and perform deep dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Pete here, and welcome to the show. We hope you all had a great break during the holiday season, no matter where you are in the world. Now, here in Melbourne, Australia, we finally got to see fireworks in the city centre for the first time in three years. It really felt like a normal New Year's Eve celebration for a change. Now, joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Shane Bollicino. So, Shane, welcome to the show. Um, How did you spend your New Year's Eve this year? Well, Pete, as usual, these days, way too early, I was actually cycling in the morning. And, you know, reflecting on this, I often think that, hey, I am the only crazy person to be out there. Some mornings, I may start as early as 4.30 a.m. And it's refreshing sometimes to see those flashing lights in the distance coming towards you to know there are other crazy people out there. So this year, I managed to just tick over and make my goal of 7,500 kilometers cycled this year. Wow. But, yeah. Well, impressive. Some people do more, some people do less. I think it's just the main thing, you know, you're doing something. But I also love this time of year. It's a great time to disconnect, uh, spend time for family. And for me, it's also where I hone my craft. I use this period to sharpen my saw and to tinker. And it always, you know, isn't about cloud, right? It can't always be about cloud. You have heard the saying, Pete, the cloud, just somebody else's computer. Indeed, and I certainly have, and I've used that phrase many, many times over the years. And look, I too have been tinkering, uh, in my case, with a lot of AI things of late, but uh, more on that later, Shane. AI, I actually, yeah, no doubt, you know, I do want to hear more, and I'm sure the listeners do. But for me, I have a thing for older enterprise IT gear. I really think it's amazing stuff. The engineering that goes into this gear, it's impressive. But often, you know, once it's passed, it's, you know, useful life. It Uh becomes end of life. It gets thrown away. And I love, you know, preventing e-waste going into the ground. So I have upgraded my house's Wi-Fi. And you may be thinking, hey, to some that, you know, new fancy 802.11ay, aka Wi-Fi 6E. But Uh I brought my house into the 802.11ac era. Yes, like, you know, 2013, 2016 era. I was on 802.11n. Um, with some secondhand Cisco Aeronets. I have five of them, um, to be precise. They've got 4G repeaters in them. You know, these devices cost thousands of dollars when they were in their heyday. They're all meshed. Um, you know, amazing coverage throughout my house, gigabit Wi-Fi. And being Cisco, there's a good dose of TFTPing, uh, console cables, and this probably shows my age, but I wonder how many of our listeners are familiar with the term 96N81. If you're not, a bit of homework for you. Perhaps you can bing it. But uh, Pete, that's for me. But I believe you have some personal news on the work front. Indeed, but I can't still get over how you've been rewiring your house with uh, e-waste that you create uh, awesome gigabit Wi-Fi networks from. But yes, look, uh, this is indeed, Shane. Um, many of you perhaps know that I have been running the Australian and New Zealand customer success team as the general manager here at Microsoft for Wow, the last two and a half years, and boy, time does really fly. Um, And starting this year, as the calendar resets to January, I have just taken up a new role, Shane. And I've taken up a new role as the Chief Technologist for Australia and New Zealand, which is really 
essentially a CTO role. So a, uh, uh, as I like to call it, um, a cloud technology officer, but fundamentally it is a technology advisor role. So very exciting times. Very exciting indeed. So you're going to have to be technical now, Pete. No more PowerPoint. You'll have to <laughs> learn to use the shell, the console. But realistically, how different is this going to be from running the customer success unit for Microsoft? It will be quite a bit different, but I, you got me laughing because as if, Shane, as if I don't use PowerShell or command line tools already. <laughs> so maybe I was a bit of a, a weird old uh, oddball GM. But look, uh, uh, now I get to spend all of my time working with customers and technology. And as a really a technology advisor, I get to play with cool new tech, experiment with it. And also, um, now I used to manage a very large team as part of my old role. Uh, and now most of my time can be devoted to working with customers and partners and creating and leading new technology things in the market because I will have a team of zero, which is fabulous. So uh, I get to still be a cultural technical technology ambassador for Microsoft technology communities, both internally and externally. Um, and I will also continue to support both technical and non-technical folks out there, uh, share best practices, um, because as you and I both know, tech is only, I mean, for many of us, it's the easy bit. It's the people, the process, uh, the culture challenges that a lot of organizations actually face. Uh, but for those of you who are also um, uh, following me on LinkedIn or perhaps uh, are directly connected, uh, you may have seen that I've also started a whole new series called uh, um, Dr. Pete's Cloud in Less Than Five Minutes video series on LinkedIn, where I talk about some really cool, interesting cloud concepts in as little as uh, I think the shortest show has been three minutes so far. So my, my role really is in line with my personal way of, uh, you know, essentially educating and inspiring people and organizations to use technology in all sorts of really important ways to create long-lasting, positive um, you know, social impact and change. Brilliant, Pete. Um, I have seen, you know, Dr. Pete's cloud in less than five minutes. I thought you've uh, turned into a full-time content creator. I don't even need to study now. <laughs> I can listen to Dr. Pete. I thought you'd call me a, what you call me, a YouTuber all, all of a sudden. You're, you're an influencer, Pete. <laughs> oh dear, that's a scary thought. So, look, pivoting back and speaking of technology, shall we let our listeners learn about what we are going to talk about in today's episode? Of course, yes, Shane. So look, welcome to the AI revolution, everybody. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be uh, diving headfirst into the wild, wild world of AI. And boy, let me tell you, there's a lot going on. It's really noisy out there, especially around AI. Everywhere you look, people are talking about AI, um, all the amazing things that it can do. Uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, but you know what's really leading the charge in this revolution chain at the moment? And that is no other than GPT-3 from OpenAI and Microsoft's also heavily involved in this space. Now this technology is shaking things up in the world of chat and text generation and uh, lots of really interesting things. So buckle up, get ready, and let's dive into the episode chain. Spot on, Pete. And look, AI, as you said, it is, it is eating software. And GPT-3 is absolutely shaking things up. And look, my, my my data point on this was I was driving my daughter to Mornington. I spent an hour in the car with her mm -hmm. once a week, driving the ballet. And I listened to, in Australia, a podcast every night called ABC PM. And the fact that the national broadcaster on their, you know, summary of the day, you know, having sessions around OpenAI and ChatGPT, for me, the fact that it's being discussed in that context, you know, really means it is shaking things up here, Pete. That's pretty mainstream, Shane, because uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, or the ABC down here in Australia, uh, is uh, a little bit, you know, 
conservative sometimes, to be honest, uh, and a little bit different. Uh, and when they get really progressive with technology like this, that's uh, kind of a bit of a strong statement to say, I would say AI is pretty much in the mainstream media now. Absolutely. So AI or artificial intelligence is a field of computer science, which focuses on the development of machines that can think, reason, and act like humans. AI research has focused on two main areas, rule-based systems and machine learning. So rule-based systems, such as expert systems, are programmed with a set of rules that allow them to respond to certain situations, whereas machine learning algorithms are then used you know, to identify patterns in data and make predictions or decisions without being explicitly programmed to do so. So that's that's pretty amazing. It sure is. So can you explain perhaps how this fits into a GPT-3 chain, which is all the rage right now? It is absolutely all the rage. I think it's my new sidekick, Pete. I've got <laughs> all these tabs open and I've got, you know, GPT-3, uh, ChatGPT, aka, uh, open in another tab. So look, ChatGPT, it's a generative pre-trade transformer from a company called OpenAI. There's a lot to take in there and we'll just we'll dissect that. Mm-hmm. So it's built on top of OpenAI's GPT-3 family of large language models and it's fine-tuned. So an approach to transfer learning with both supervised and reinforced learning techniques. As I said, there's a lot to unpack here. I mentioned GPT. So if you're wondering what a what GPT is, it is a generative pre-trained transformer. So it's an auto, sorry, it's an auto-regressive language model that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. And it's incredibly human-like. Um, given an initial text, it will produce text that continues oh, on and on and on. Correct. Exactly right. So the quality of the text generated by GPT-3 is, you know, as I said, so high that it can be difficult to determine whether or not it was written by a human. Um, and whilst launched as a prototype, it's quickly garnered the attention for, you know, its detailed responses, its articulate answers across many domains of knowledge. And look, today, Pete and I were doing a bit of prep for the show and it was offline due to scaling <laughs> challenges here because it is really, really popular. Well, I think the stats were in the first week or more like five days, they had a over a million users actually using it. And, uh, um, it's been quite an amazing thing. So, you know, if we talk about, uh, AI, uh, there are many different ways in industry. Um, and GPT has certainly been leading the charge in this field as of late, especially in chat and text creation. Um, but this is really the tipping point of a very, very, very large iceberg of AI, um, that's actually out there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different technologies in AI. So you've got things like computer vision, which perhaps many of you are familiar with. It's where AI is used to understand visual information. So it looks at images, video feeds, um, and it's often used in robotics and you know, superchargers, perhaps uh, self-driving cars with augmentation with LiDAR. Um, and Shane, you're typing there in the background, so it's getting very noisy. <laughs> I was just going to say, Pete, look, AI, you know, talking about revolutions here, it is, you know, the new industrial revolution here. It certainly is. But look, there's other things too, right? Like natural language processing or NLP for short. Uh, and this is all about where AI is used to process and understand human language. Uh, so things like speech recognition and uh, text-to-speech synthesis is also part of that. Um, and uh, you know, GPT is also very impressive because actually able to generate lots of interesting things and use cases around language translation, uh, chatbots, uh, as GPT Chat is all about, as well as be able to you know infer and you can actually even ask a question. So it's quite an impressive language model. Um, 
but there's still more. There's robotics, and AI is very heavily used in advanced robotics to control, you know, robots and automations and capable of performing tasks in a slew of variety of different environments. So, you know, you think about cars being manufactured, so factory, factories, uh, hospitals in many spaces, um, also space exploration is very popular uh, for robotics. So again, another realm of AI. Um, and if, of course, you would have heard about machine learning, which is really the method of teaching AI systems to learn from data. So rather than being explicitly programmed or coded in or hard-coded, it's used in many different fields. Again, you know, in image recognition, NLP, computer vision, and it's really kind of uh, the plumbing of um, how a lot of this AI stuff fits together. And if that wasn't enough, um, there's another important technology which you may have heard many, many decades ago, perhaps, uh, maybe at university for some of you, and that's neural networks. They've been around for quite a while, and uh, they essentially are the, the mechanism of, you know, of creating structure uh, and providing function of the human brain or other emulation and simulation of it uh, so that you can actually process information. Uh, and again, it's used for a whole bunch of different uh, bits of plumbing or think of it as the engine, but again, for computer vision systems as well as NLP. So those things have been evolving over time. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, uh, if you go deeper with machine learning, uh, there's also deep learning, which is another subfield of machine learning and uses neural networks with multiple layers uh, to extract complex features and patterns in data, which is really a fancy way of saying that um, deep learning can actually um, have lots of um, layers that are stacked on top of each other. Is this an edge? Is this a line? Uh, so when you build a, um, a computer vision model, you actually end up using a whole bunch of uh, different systems and layers combined to learn things. And to bring it home, again, there's also another AI part of the uh, the landscape called reinforcement learning, which is really a type of machine learning that uses essentially trial and error to improve decision making. So think of it as uh, when you know you have little kids and they follow in the playground and they get hurt. Um, that's an example of reinforcement learning. You have positive reinforcements and those that are perhaps negative. Uh, and by telling the system that uh, something is not good for it or is a bad outcome, it eventually over time learns and figures out what the best options are for making good decisions at the end. So there's certainly a lot in this space. There's lots of AI complexity, lots of buzzword chain, as you alluded to earlier, but uh, all this stuff is currently in the limelight um, and it's really an exciting time to be in the world of AI. Take a breath there, Pete. That was a lot to get through. Whew, there was. <laughs> and look, I think we just had a lap around the world there. We did. I was gonna ask you, I heard you typing there in the background. So, so was that you talking the GPT-3 in the background? It was actually, I was asking, <laughs> what do I, what do I say? <laughs> um, and look, we could dive into each of those areas. And I think a lot of this, we need to talk about transformers here, right? Essentially, this is what has kicked off the AI revolution of late. Given AI has gone through, you know, a number of AI winters, sort of, you know, to speak where things have moved forward a lot, then slowed down. I'm sure, you know, we've all been in this game long enough, you know, AI is going to revolutionize things. It's been... Mm -hmm. spoken about for a lot of time here, but I think we're probably, you know, at that point here now more than ever. It's really amazing. It, it is. Really is. Um, and I think the advent of cloud, you know, the abundance of CPU cores, uh, GPUs in the cloud has helped push things quite a lot of it. You know, the ability to train these large complex models. We're talking about GPT-3. Have you seen how many data points the GPT-4 will be, you know, exponentially larger than 3.5? Um, so we can speed things up like never before with more cores and more specialized cores, aka GPUs uh, and other 
um, FPGA ASIC style um, processes to help sort out this trading. Actually, a bit of a side note here, Pete. Um, no. Have your kids been asking you yet for the latest uh, NVIDIA 4000 series RTX or the AMD RX 7900 series GPUs? Not yet, but I've certainly been looking at them for particularly for AI purposes. I was going to actually upgrade my desktop machine uh, to something more recent. And uh, the uh, the later generations of the NVIDIA um, GPUs are pretty good, actually, and uh, they're pretty well priced, too. So I, I, I may be the one buying one, not the kids for a change. Um, I was actually watching something on YouTube this morning from at CES. So Ooh. developer workstation, I've got just the one from you, from our friends at Supermicro. It's cost $80,000 US. It's it's water-cooled. I know you like water-cooling. Um, it's water-cooled. Wow. It's twin Xeons, and it has four GPUs in there, like NVIDIA A100s. It's a bargain, Pete. I think you should get it. I do hope this new role came with a pay rise, though. Uh, <laughs> I wish it did too, because uh, that's a very expensive price tag. I thought you were going to tell me you can get one on eBay for like you know a hundred bucks, like you got your internet <laughs> equipment. <laughs> uh, so look, let's discuss transformers, which, as I said, are at the core of a lot of these new AI gear shifts for the better. You know, in this technology sector. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that what you knew about AI when you were at university, you could probably almost throw out the window, to be honest, because Transformers is uh, what really kicked off, um, I guess, the AI uh, revolution as of late. Uh, and look, to put it simply, you know, AI Transformers are a type of neural network architectures that are used for natural language processing in particular, so NLP for short. Um, so for tasks like language translation, text summarization, and question answering, these are awesome. Now, they were first introduced in a paper in 2017 uh, by Google um, where they talked about the transformer, the actual transformer model. And everybody picked up that idea and ended up running with it, which is very, very impressive. Now, the key innovation here of transformers <laughs> is to self-attend uh, to particular parts of what's being submitted. So, which just allows you to model the weights of the important different parts, for example, a bit of text that's being submitted and when it actually makes predictions on how it actually should be used. So, basically, it's all about focusing in attention parts of a text string essentially and this allows you to handle input sequences of various lengths uh, with various efficiency of processing to be able to establish what is the key important part of data that we're trying to look at so in other words this breakthrough now in, in natural language processing was really brought about the technology like gpt3 which is essentially considered one of the most advanced nlp models out there and it's being used in many different domains for chatbots and all sorts of language generation uh, use cases uh, so it really is an, an, a very flexible model, the transformer model, uh, as a technology in the um, NLP space because it actually allows you to be able to translate one thing, one thing to another. And a lot of this stuff actually comes from uh, when they were first trying to look at how do you do a translation from one language to another. So the transformer model really has its roots fundamentally in the way you translate from one language to another, throw enough data at it, and all of a sudden starts doing some really magical stuff. So these transformers have made their way into lots and lots of AI tools uh, that are not just, by the way, for text. You can also use them for uh, picture generation. So what you see in DALI and Stable Diffusion and many other similar AIs, a lot of them are actually underneath the hood using transformer technology to be able to translate from one to the other. AKA DALI, you put a, a bit of text and DALI will magically generate your picture. That's actually a form of translation, right? From text to picture. No need when I'm creating PowerPoint decks as a GM, Pete, to do an image search. You just use Dali down. You say, cre create me a picture that does this. And as you said, you know, it's, it is pretty amazing. All right. 
So let's talk about interacting with these AI systems. Pete, give us some insights on how to create a good prompt for these AI models like GPT-3. So I'm talking prompt engineering, and that's it. It's an interesting case here. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with prompt engineering, maybe give us a bit of a description, Pete. Yeah, absolutely. And look, prompt engineering is a little bit like when you're used to write SQL queries against a database. So just like the way you used to query a database for a specific question, except you would say select star from table, which gives you everything, which is not very useful. Uh, as you tune your queries, you start to get better results. So in AI, we use prompts to ask the models for a specific output. And it's really all about understanding the language of the AI model actually speaks and understands, and then be able to craft essentially an input to guide the AI to give you the best, perhaps most desirable outcome you're trying to achieve. So this is really similar to how we have been querying databases for many, many decades. Fancy term, prompt engineering, uh, but essentially a lot of the apps that are being built when they connect to a large language model, for example, or other AIs, they have to pass in a query. They have to pass in an instruction set. So these prompt engineering engineers, I guess, or software developers who are now sort of running SQL queries are running uh, prompts against AIs uh, certainly would be passing, uh, you know, write me, you know, in English, for example, write me a podcast for this episode as an example uh, to experiment if we could actually create a show or write me uh, or translate or perhaps uh, this from English to French uh, or maybe uh, what were the actions out of this transcript of a meeting. So prompt engineering is really about what do you provide to the AI engine to then be be able to give you something back. So that's pretty impressive because it's essentially um, a very small bit of text you submit, but the results you get, just like in the SQL, uh, can be very large and overwhelming. So imagine you know, a prompt being embedded inside a web page, or perhaps it's a couple of buttons you click uh, for analysis, um, and all of these essentially get passed into the AI engine. And many of them have actually been making an appearance as chatbots, essentially. Uh, quick, sort of like a command line. So you talked about command shell, Shane. You, know, you can you can certainly interact with AI models for a whole bunch of different ways. Text is pretty much the main one, and you know you could be having those embedded inside a Slack channel or perhaps even inside Microsoft Teams. So ChatUps is well and truly alive. So uh, look, number of different ways of talking to AI systems, uh, lots of different use cases, but fundamentally the interaction model between you and the model is via prompt engineering. Indeed, it's knowing what to prompt. Exactly. Um. It was interesting, Pete, have, just listening to you there. I was hoping when you're issuing those, you know, select star from table. <laughs> hope it's not blocking or anything like that. We don't want to break things. Well, it's funny because the um, the, the AI models actually are often can be executed in parallel queries as well. So it's kind of interesting because quite often there's a, there's a lot of stuff uh, running behind the scenes. And when you stand up a model, quite often you probably will be standing up inside a containerized environment. So you can actually spin up many, many, many hundreds of those really, really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I was just actually reading today uh, a kind of uh, state of play around developers and, you know, the container usage just continues to, to grow to grow and grow and grow. And as you said, these pre-trained models like GPT, yeah, once they're trained, being able to query against these models, you know, most likely it is going to be some form of containerized. Uh, instance, but correct. Look, and look, and look. At the moment, they're sitting in the cloud because they're generally very large at the moment. But I can see a future where essentially you'll have a, you know, an AI model sitting on your laptop in your phone because those models have been compressed so much. Because when you train the model, you go through I don't know 135 million data points. Um, 
down to a couple of gigabytes of actual out output, right? So once you essentially have trained a machine, uh, those things can sit quite comfortably on a laptop, on a phone, which is kind of interesting. Where imagine having AI everywhere. Amazing. I think we're getting there. As you said, we got new compression models. Storage is getting larger. I, I don't RAM, think it's CPU. Yeah. You name it. Yeah, it's not outside of the realms of possibility in you know five or so years. Not at all. Okay, so um, AI, right? It's not just in these cutting edge tech fields we're seeing this and the impact of AI. It's becoming more prevalent in everyday use cases. So if you think about it from customer service, chatbots, as Pete has alluded to, you know, and you've got chat ops these days, voice assistants, personalizing your e-commerce, your shopping experience, predictive maintenance. It's a big one. You know, there's a lot of cost uh -huh. in maintenance here. So if you think about on the AI front here, what do you do? Do you do you, do you perform maintenance at your large organization based on a sensor? Maybe you're performing maintenance when you don't need to. Uh, if you've got a large corpus of thousands of machines all operating in the field, what are the patterns, etc.? Right. So from a predictive maintenance point of view, you've got self-driving cars. We are interacting with AI more and more in our daily lives, and it is definitely an interesting shift in how mm -hmm. we interact with technology. It's showing how AI is becoming more and more integral to our daily lives. Uh, it's making our life more convenient. And there's pros and cons of that. Uh, it's efficient in ways that we could not have imagined before. And this is just a start. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how AI evolves and how it will shape our future. Absolutely. And I think uh, when you think about this, when I came across AI some years ago, um, a lot of folks that I was speaking to were talking about automation and high AI was going to displace and they were thinking of factories first. So they were thinking about disrupting the blue collar workers in factories uh, with, you know, IOT uh, things coming along and AI being the first place where the impact was going to be the highest. But I think what we've seen is the opposite. Uh, the white collar workers um, have been perhaps the most impacted, especially those that work in things like software engineering or copywriting or image generation, so artistic creativity space. I think those folks are certainly um, waking up to, wow, this, this, this technology is really disrupting the industry. Uh, I think it's going to replace them altogether, but I think it's like when, um, you know, humans discovered that, uh, you know, dogs and wolves could be trained to be the best friends. So as you were joking earlier about having a tab open in your browser, I think many people will get to the point where AI becomes a sidekick, right? It's like the, um, it is the assistant, uh, to what it is that you're actually doing. Um, and I think it's also important to sort of think about that with technologies like DALI and stable diffusion, that with the right prompts can create images, you know, you also can displace, uh, you know, web image searching, for example. Right? So to use, you're saying earlier about, you know, putting into PowerPoint, imagine being able to create a PowerPoint, you know, uh, prompt the system, create me a PowerPoint presentation on the state of, I don't know, the nation uh, or how is my company performing and includes charts and pictures and generates some clip art for you at the same time. So I think it's really interesting. And in fact, speaking of which, did you notice that in my last all hands to the uh, customer success team, I had three pictures of rabbits on one of the slides, Shane? Uh, all of those were actually generated by Dali. And I used them to talk about the three things people should think about before they head off for the end of the year to, to recharge their batteries. And you know, when you think about it, it's almost like magic. We're just starting to scratch the surface of where AI can actually take us. Absolutely. And yes, I did notice that you were using Dali and it was impressive stuff. But what I just heard from that is, does that mean I can spend more time cycling or at the beach? Or am I going to be replaced completely here? I think there's a lot to take in to discuss uh -huh. you know, the pros and cons here. 
Um, but there are a lot of other interesting use cases for these AI models as well. There's truckloads. There yeah, is, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of someone using GPT to write an apology letter to avoid a speeding fine. Someone else using GPT to write messages to friends, inviting them to an event without bringing their partners. And that can be quite difficult, you know, to deliver. <laughs> and GPT came through, wrote a great message, um, SMS message. You know, it's fascinating to see how these AI models can be used in such creative ways. I've seen people post, um, you know, I've taken an exam. I use ChatGPT as my sidekick here. So it is interesting. And I'm not advocating for people to, you know, leverage these in unprofessional ways. But, you know, it is amazing to see the use cases that people are coming up with in using these models. Yeah. And look, what we've also seen is, um, you know, GPT and text being generated for uh, assignment writing, right? So interestingly, you know, there are, uh, students at universities, and we certainly in Australia have seen uh, a fair bit of press as of late around is Australian education system sleepwalking into a problem. Uh, this was actually one of the headlines, oddly enough, uh, that was talking about how uh, universities and schools are now starting to ban AI technologies or at least access to them from school uh, networks, computers, in fact, suggesting that they may be even doing exams with pe- traditional pen and paper, shock horror. Uh, to, in order to be able to avoid the influence that AI may actually have um, and drive perhaps uh, you know bad student habits and influencing the education system in a negative way where our future generation um, leaders will perhaps be you know quote cheat uh, or avoid doing hard hard work it's it's interesting how practical some of that is who knows as you said you know maybe we are just sleepwalking it is changing so 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 fast and Speaking of AI and plagiarism, you know, uh-huh. there are ways to combat what you just spoke about. You know, it's possible to detect if a piece has been generated by an AI system. There Absolutely. are software tools available that can analyze text and determine if it was written by a human or by an AI model. Not 100%. Obviously, it's, you know, it's a, there's a percentage value of confidence here. These uh-huh. tools, though, they can help educators and institutions to identify plagiarized content, you know, and obviously take the appropriate action. It's yeah. not a... yeah. It's not yeah, about it is yeah. It's not about detecting plagiarism, but it's ensuring the originality and the authenticity of the work. And I think by using these tools, educators can ensure that students are doing the work themselves. And you know, the AI-generated text would be identified as not being original. Absolutely, and I think what's even more interesting is that some of these more tax-savvy people in the education sector, so teachers and you know lecturers and so forth. Uh, you know, have actually flipped the script on this stuff. So pardon the pun there, Shane. Um, but uh, yeah, they've also used AI uh, to look at the generated essays that students have submitted and also ask the AI in turn to grade those papers against like a, a rubric or a criteria. I think I know where come. you're going here, Pete. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious, right? It's, it's, it's like the AI arms race of the future, right? It is, where, isn't it? Yeah, we can actually move forward. And I think it's also interesting because as these uh, AI tools get used by students, there's also the positive side of it, right? Every technology is neutral in my mind. It's how you choose to use it for, for good of humanity or perhaps uh, uh, not so much the good of humanity. But when you think about it, it, what this stuff allows students to do is to have to be more creative, look at the grammar, look at the coherence and structure of what their ideas are they're trying to put forward, uh, be able to put forward uh, an argument, right? Uh, and that will actually help them to educate themselves in terms of being more creative in how they express themselves. So there are actually many positives to being able to teach students to write um, better essays, better better, better text. Um, so there are many different facets to this technology and it's not necessarily all bad, all doom and gloom. 
Uh, and certainly, I think the point you were making earlier around being able to detect if someone's actually uh, <laughs> uh, provided some uh, text that's actually AI generated. Oddly enough, um, a guy called by um, um, Edward Tian, a developer who actually um, tweeted recently, oddly enough, over Christmas, he actually spent building an app called GPT-0 that can quickly and efficiently essentially det detect whether an essay that's been submitted or a bit of text has been done by chat GPT or human. And the way it actually does that, uh, it actually looks at the um, uh, the structure of the sentences um, and figures out essentially, you know, what is a distribution uh, of how the text actually flows. And apparently humans tend to jump around a little, little bit more than the AI. Um, so you've got this score. If you go look up uh, GPT-0, you can put some text in there and it'll actually tell you whether it is actually, uh, you know, AI generated or perhaps by humans. It gives you a bit of a score. Uh, so definitely an interesting project. And uh, yeah, this guy pulled it off uh, while we're probably watching the fireworks in this part of the world. Um, he may have been coding up his uh, GPT-0 app. Indeed. And just like ChatGPT was uh -huh. offline for us this morning, the amount of times I've tried to hit GPT-0 where it's either slow or I'm sure it's getting a lot of work where people uh -huh. are trying to understand whether or not, you know, content was created by AI here. <laughs> Interesting. And, look, and there's, there's other flow on effects, right? I mean, there are some communities that are now saying, hey, we don't want you to post yeah. anything that has been generated by an AI. Absolutely. So, you know, Stack Overflow, uh, it's the standard for a lot of IT pros developers out there. Whenever you're, you know, you've got a problem, you end up on Stack Overflow. Well, Stack Overflow have banned GPT responses. So they have determined that the average ratio of getting a correct answer from ChatGPT is too low, right? So. Uh -huh. The posting of answers created by ChatGPT is substantially harmful to the site, to the community, to the users who are looking for correct answers. And it's important for online communities and platforms to take steps to ensure that the information provided is always accurate and valuable to users. And this is one way in which you know they're addressing this challenge of AI on their platform. So temporarily, they're banning this. Um, and you know, it's fascinating to watch this and see how it evolves. And I think this is the thing that we haven't really figured out, right? And that is, what are the flow-on effects, the consequential impacts, you know, both primary, secondary, and tenary, right? What's the blast radius of AI? Because the stuff that you and I and you know, many of us haven't even thought about, when you put it in the wild, you start to see, oh my gosh, I did not expect this to be the case, right? Because a lot of people still think, you know, AI, you know, is usually, you know, spot on. But the reality is, it's it's a percentage. It's a it's a confidence interval. Uh, it might be better than 51% accurate than a human, right? So it's better than a coin toss. Um, so you can't always assume that AI is always spot on either. So those comments by Stack Overflow um, that, you know, the answers may not always be correct. Uh, yeah, they are actually accurate. You, know, you have to be very careful with some of this stuff and um, that could actually create, you know, misinformation or disinformation or whatever the uh, outcome that someone's trying to create with an AI output. Kind of frightening, right? It is kind of frightening indeed. Uh Go for a so, 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 so imagine now, this is this is where my brain's rushing off to. So imagine now for a moment, Shane, that you're you know you're relying on a trusty AI assistant to help you with your daily tasks, right? <laughs> As you are right now. I heard you typing again. Uh, all of a sudden, it goes offline for whatever reason that may be the case, right? Ah. So your trusty sidekick, right? Your Robin to your Batman, your Watson to your Doctor Sherlock Holmes is gone. No, your 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 dog, your favorite pet, is no longer there to actually help you assist you with your daily activities, and that's a pretty scary thought. Especially when you consider how much we start, we are starting to rely on AI these days, you know, becoming almost codependent on it, which is kind of interesting, especially in our daily lives. 
Um, now my wife uses, you know, Siri a lot to, uh, to make appointments and send messages. So I imagine if all those systems all of a sudden stop working, I think about it, the productivity impacts and the hit that, you know, you and many others would actually have all across the globe. You know, just imagine how much the stock market, for example, relies on auto trading systems. And we've also seen those systems actually cause some uh, share market glitches every now and again, albeit for a split second, but still they do exist. So imagine if all of a sudden these systems stop working. And there's a real concern here that um, something could definitely go bump in the night, create a problem, and essentially could create some challenges, especially for us when you think about um, the economic headwinds, when you think about the uh, gross domestic products that are used to calculate whether someone's going into a recession. Imagine, you know, a GDP is essentially measured by the number of people you have in your country and how productive they are. Uh, some parts of the world have an aging population. So imagine as you, your workforce reduces, your workforce that is still working needs to be more productive. And this is where AI can be a really interesting uh, way of doing more with less because it can become, again, technology becoming a deflationary force in an inflation or in a world where we need to be able to achieve more. And if those uh, parts of the world or domains of industries, for example, or um, uh, special role functions are relying heavily on AI, if AI was to stop for whatever reason, imagine the displacement that could actually create and the negative impact to GDPs. Pretty deep conversation here, Pete, that you're uh, going through. It is, isn't it? It's... Kind of, again, it's the it's the blast radius, right? The, the primary, the secondary, the tenary, and the you know unexpected consequences. Amazing. It is true. But you know, if we think about this, we've been in this ITK bar quite a long mm -hmm. time. Many <laughs> of the primitives that we understand, and if I speak to those who are early on in Korea, they may not understand, you know, some of the core fundamentals. For example, you know, do people need to understand about memory interrupts these days, DMA registers and things like that? Is AI just an evolution of that? Ultimately. Yeah. yeah, it's an abstraction, right? It's like building on top of something else. And it's a famous phrase of standing on the shoulders of others. I think if we were expecting our current generation of IT professionals to understand all of that, that's a lot to digest. You got to make some calls, right? And there's always room for people who work in the fundamentals. But I think as you see in engineering, uh, in, in classic engineering, um, there are fewer people lower down the stack and automation and uh, simplification is how you deal with that. Yeah, spot on. You know, I think it's just a, a sign of the times here. Indeed, and, okay, indeed. As I alluded to before, look, listeners, we were preparing for this episode and we had issues connecting with GPT-3. So, you know, what do we do? Do we just stop? Um, you know, it was giving us some pretty funny 404 equivalent errors, aka the site's too busy. Um, GPT's taking a coffee break. Try again later. Um, GPT's <laughs> currently on a call with Elon Musk. Check back later. You know, it's all in good fun, but it serves as a reminder these systems are not, you know, infallible and can have down times. Exactly, Shane. And this is where I guess AI becomes more and more prevalent in everyday life, right? And it's crucial that we make sure it's dependable, it's reliable, it's accurate, but most of all, it's also ethical, right? And here at Microsoft, we've been on the forefront of responsible AI for many, many years now. So think of us as the responsible adults in the room, so to speak. Um, so yeah, you know, it's interesting to sort of think about it in that respect because uh, it'd be great to, to share a bit of that shame with others around as to what Microsoft's been doing, especially around uh, responsible AI. And yeah. uh, maybe let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about that. Yeah, look, it's not only about being, you know, responsible and ethical, but it's equitable that everyone yeah. has access to, you know, these oh, technologies. Yeah. The so, great divide, right? You the want to great divide. Yeah. yeah. 
So look, we take the topic of responsible AI seriously. It's not just a pet project. You've heard us talk about this before. It's embedded into you know the DNA and how we operate at Microsoft. We have an office of responsible AI that helps put our AI principles into practice by defining, enabling, you know, and governing the company's approach to responsible AI. Look, it helps us shape new laws, norms, and the standards to ensure that the promise of AI technology is realized for the benefit of all, right? So, uh -huh. you know, being equitable, as I said, ethics and trust are not just embedded tools. They're an essential, you know, they are essential for the responsible use of AI. So we have a clear and publicly accountable agenda for AI at Microsoft, and it's important for us to live up to it, even if it impacts our business. So the summary you know, of this is Microsoft's been actively working towards responsible AI for nearly six years ago, You know, back when AI was just a glimmer on the horizon here. And I think it's seven years now, Shane, because now we're now in the, uh, the year of our Lord 2023, so uh, it's an extra year. Crazy, hey, huh? There we go. <laughs> still, my mind is still in 2022. Uh... Um, and this began with an article by Satya Nadella in the state in the Slate magazine titled, you know, The Partnership of the Future, where he introduces a concept of transparency, efficiency, and protection against bias. And in 2017, Microsoft formed the AI Ethics Committee, um, which we call Aether, A-E-T-H-E-R, which published the Future Computed uh, a publication. So in 2018, we called for government regulations of facial recognition technology. In 2019, we formed the Office of Responsible AI. In 2020, RAISE, or Responsible AI in System Engineering, was formed, and so on. So, you know, we've been pretty busy on a continuous journey around Responsible AI because it's just moving so fast. Indeed, and look, we're certainly taking a, uh, uh, a lead in this space, especially around Responsible uh, and reliable AI here at Microsoft. But that's, that's, let's not forget really that the AI industry as a whole is completely booming all over the place. So it's not just us, it's many other organizations. And while the future looks bright in so many different ways, um, you know, it helps us to automate mundane tasks, to you know, handing out you know, medical diagnosis in some cases on you know, x-rays. Um, it's truly revolutionizing almost everything we do in our lives every single day. And look, Microsoft really is you know, focusing on exploring lots of different ways of empowering everyone to achieve more by embedding AI into many of our productivity tools. So imagine being able to create your own AI-powered personal assistant or having an AI-powered suggestion system for your email responses, maybe document generation, your presentations, as I was alluding to earlier. Uh, and this is the kind of innovation that would help to achieve more, right? To help maybe be that deflationary way to reduce inflation. Um, and maybe help us grow the GDP growth I was alluding to earlier and perhaps ultimately benefit every single person in the world. Imagine if AI was available to every single person on the planet. No matter how wealthy you are, whether you're in Africa or in the wealthiest first world countries, imagine the power that would actually bring to every single person's life uh, if there was an AI assistant uh, powering you and helping you with all the mundane things so that you could achieve more. Sounds like um, living the Jetsons, a cartoon show when I was a kid, Pete. <laughs> Okay, exciting to hear, and it's amazing to think about all the possibilities that AI could bring to our daily lives. I look forward to seeing how Microsoft continues to innovate and lead in this space. And look, it's great to see that it's ultimately, it's becoming us all, helping us all be more efficient and productive. As you said, a deflationary measure around, you know, inflation, help with GDP, GDP growth, and so on. Indeed. So look, uh, that kind of wraps up the episode, Shane. And look, yet we are just still scratching the AI surface, so to speak. So look, 
We hope this episode has given you all a better chance to understand what is AI and perhaps how it is being used in the uh, the good uh, and maybe perhaps the gray shady areas of our student assignment submissions. <laughs> <laughs> and look, we discussed a whole bunch of stuff around a bit of history of AI, many of the use cases. You know, so next time you get a speeding fine, maybe consider writing a an automated response of GPT-3 or send an SMS to your friends when you don't know how to phrase a, a difficult response. Uh, but look, the potential for this technology is huge and it's going to shape all of our lives and many generations to come. So look, uh, we discussed lots of really interesting things. Uh, so I really hope that uh, you've enjoyed the show. And uh, look, Shane, thanks for joining and thanks for tuning in, everybody. And until next time, please do stay safe, have fun and keep on learning. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.